Uh, But turn with me as you do to Exodus chapter 34. It is a long chapter. I'll read the the whole of it, um, and we'll uh, consider God's word together. Let's hear now the reading of God's word for his people. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on it the tablets, the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your possession. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as not have been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt." All that open the wound are wine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest. And the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet, no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leaven, or let the sacrifice of the, peace of Pas- the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, 
and he ate neither bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten words. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them that all the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went out to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I've developed a stock answer to the question, how did a certain wedding go? I've done this with my wife and a few friends, so they know how I answer it now. So people will say, you know, how was so-and-so's wedding? And I'll say, it was successful. They're married. That's the, that's the idea of a wedding. You get married by the end of it. And uh, why am I saying this? Well, it's, the answer of this is that while some weddings are more lavish than others, uh, some wedding ceremonies go really well without a hitch. Others don't go so well. I've been in some of those weddings, done some of those weddings. But the important thing is two people are married by the end of it. In fact, I've even used this in premarital counseling when we're talking with the the couple to be married, and we're talking about marriage, but then they keep coming back to the wedding ceremony. Well, what about this detail or that? And I say, look, the key of the wedding is that you get to the marriage. No matter what goes wrong, you know, that's the day. The rest of it is a marriage. So covenant making is important, but what's even more important is covenant keeping, you might say, covenant continuance. Well, what we have in our passage today is all about a covenant ceremony, covenant making, covenant keeping. It talks a bit about covenant breaking. That's the context of the Lord coming to Moses. So you might say this whole ceremony is a covenant renewal ceremony, renewing the covenant that Israel and God had made earlier. See, renewing the covenant is a very biblical idea. Uh, If you read the Old Testament, you can't get very far without seeing this important thing. You know, the Lord appears to Abraham in Genesis, but each time uh, there's the next generation, the Lord appears to them, and he renews that covenant. The covenant I made with Abraham, he makes with Isaac and with Jacob and so on. We see this when Joshua, if you remember, enters the land and there's covenant renewal again. Joshua says this next generation's got to make the covenant. They've got to be renewed in the covenant. We see it with some of the kings. Josiah, if you remember, when Israel comes back into the land after their exile. So covenant renewals really are important in the Bible, and it must mean that this idea of covenant is important. In this series in Exodus, we've kind of already seen this, but we need to see it again. The Lord tells Moses from the very beginning that the reason he's going to rescue Israel, the reason he's going to bring them out of captivity and bring them to their own land is because of a covenant he made with their forefathers. In other words, the Lord says, I'm going to renew it again in this generation for you, and that's why I'm going 
to deliver you. But what we've seen in the last few weeks as we've been going through Exodus is that Israel has already broken this covenant. Uh, not just, you might say, a kind of single misstep in the covenant, but a pretty fatal breaking of it. And it was just as they made the covenant. So as I've thought about it, it's kind of like the marriage ceremony has like hardly concluded when the marriage relationship is already violated. And it's all in the context of this uh, passage today. The, what I want us to consider then is this idea of covenant renewal. Uh, what does the scripture teach us about this? What do we gain from this today? What does it mean for you and your covenant, the, the fact that God makes covenant with his people today? So what I want to show us is that this pattern of covenant renewal is the pattern of the gospel. It's good news. If you look at your outline there, what we're going to see is the whole outline for this passage really is just the outline of how God gives us the gospel. And as we consider this passage, and if you see the outline, really there's kind of three major sections, pretty easy to break down. Uh, verses 1 through 10 is what I call the character or characters of the covenant. Um, anytime there's a covenant, you got to know who's making the covenant, uh, who's making these vows, and therefore what's the character of this uh, covenant itself? What's the character of this relationship? Uh, verses 11 through 28 are the responsibilities of a covenant. Every, co every covenant you make with somebody has responsibilities. There's things to be done, stipulations, things to be followed in this covenant. And the Lord sets those down. But then in the last section there, in verses 29 through 35, we get the outworking of the covenant. It's kind of like I said, it's not just the covenant making, but what's the life of the covenant look like? What's the result of this covenant bond, this association look like? And then finally, we'll reflect on, again, what this sums up to be. What does it mean for us? How do we reflect on this for today? So if you look at verse 1, the passage begins with this call to renew the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Uh, but what Exodus has already called the testimonies. So the, even the Ten Commandments are testimonies to the covenant. And remember, Moses had broken them upon seeing the people in idolatry. It's interesting, we don't get a sense that Moses was in sin doing that. We don't see that from the text, but God does remind Moses here that you broke this and we're going to have to renew this covenant. It's sort of a picture, in a sense, of Israel itself having broken the covenant. And that's what frames our passage. The covenant has to be restored. There needs to be restoration here. So the Lord gives Moses another call to ascend the mountain. Um, as you remember, this has been a lot of times of Moses going up and down the mountain. It appears to be the fourth time, I think, that Moses goes back up to the top of the mountain. And it's on the heights that the Lord meets with him. Again, it's the biblical principle. You have to go up to meet with God. Why? Because God's the high and lifted up one. So we go up on high to meet with God. But even then, notice that the Lord, it says the text tells us the Lord descended. I always love that. Moses goes up to the highest point he possibly can, and it's still uh, too low for the Lord. He's got to come down. The highest mountain is too low for our sovereign God, so he comes down to meet. Moses goes early in the morning at the rising of the light, and then the text gives us this curious phrase. Look at verse 5. The cloud, this is the Shekinah cloud, God's glory cloud, descended, and he stood with him there. That he is the Lord. So we're telling that the Lord is descending in a cloud, but then suddenly we switch to the Lord standing with Moses. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? And then it goes on in somewhat of a strangeness. And he, 
that is the Lord, proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord proclaims the name of the Lord. Hmm. The Lord passed before him, it says. The Lord passed by Moses. This is what Moses had asked for. He wants to see the glory of the Lord. And the Lord says, my goodness will pass before you. And the Lord passes by and proclaims the name, the Lord, the Lord. Isn't it kind of interesting in this passage that we're getting different aspects of the Lord? The Lord comes in a cloud. He stands with Moses. The Lord passes by, but the Lord proclaims a name. The name is the Lord himself. Kind of no wonder, you might say, as Christians look back on the Old Testament, we say there's kind of these little glimmers of who the Lord is, revealing himself fully. Glimmers of that fact that we come to see that God is one, but yet also multi-personed. One in three. The Lord is revealing himself here to Moses. The high and lifted up one, but condescending to his people. And it's interesting that when Moses asked to see, to see God, to see his glory, that what we get is not a sight, but actually a proclamation. He gets a word, the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord isn't just the Lord, it's the Lord and then a kind of creed, a kind of description of who the Lord is. His name is like a story. His name is something to be believed in. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How is this part of a covenant ceremony? Well, think about any kind of covenant ceremony, maybe your own marriage or a wedding you've been at. You say, I, Robert Charles Krauss, take thee, you state the names. It's part of what you do in a covenant. You state who you are and who you're taking to be your covenant in this covenant relationship. Well, the Lord is saying, hey, here's who I am. This is my covenant description. A king who would make treaties in the ancient world would often say, here's who I am. Here's what I'll do if you keep the covenant. Here's what I'll do if you don't keep the covenant. This is my character of who I am. And what God gives us is a character of contrast. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. Do you see these contrasts? It's an illustration, too, of what the Lord is like. He says it this way. He says, I keep steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means will I make clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's a description of who this covenant God is. Well, people sometimes find these words to be a bit hard, isn't it? To the fourth, third, or fourth generation, the father and the fathers and the children's children. But it's actually a description of how slow his anger is. See, we think, wow, that's really angry. That's really judgmental. But think about it this way. This is how slow God's anger. Look at the contrast. Implied in this term, thousands, and maybe even your translation says this, is not just lots of people, thousands. It's actually the term thousand generations. One of the reasons we know this is that this verse in the Old Testament is actually one of the most quoted verses in the Old Testament. Maybe it is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. Over and over again, and a number of times when this is quoted, it says, to a thousand generations. It makes it explicit. So what difference does that make? Well, here's gonna, I'm going to work out some math for you, and I'm not very good with math. I had to ask a colleague at my seminary who's very good about math about this. So what do we do with a thousand generations? Well, let's do a little hypothetical. If one person were to marry and to have two children, let's just set it that, not lots of children, we'll just do two, 
Um, and that went on for a thousand generations. Each person, each two married. Okay, so I tried to do this on my calculator, my phone calculator, and it read error. So I wrote my, I was like, I don't, did I do it wrong? He says, no, it's so big, your phone can't give you the answer. So we got on the computer, we wrote it out, and again, it's so large, I can't even, there's no name to give this number. It's a one with 302 zeros behind it. So the Lord is steadfast in his love to that many. Okay, can we then put in perspective the third or fourth generation? It's a lot smaller number. On the other hand, third or fourth generation, maybe 16 at the highest using the same numbers. That's the contrast of God's love versus his anger and judgment. He says, I'm slow to anger. It's going to stop. There's an ending point. In fact, we know that generations, this happens, we see this in life anyway. Doesn't generational sin often get handed down? Some of our families, maybe some of your families, you've seen that there's generational sin and it just seems to pass down after generation after generation. There's actually almost a mercy here when the Lord says, the third or fourth generation, that's when I'm going to stop it. The third or fourth generation, I'll visit that sin to that generation. This is an illustration for the sake of contrast. This is our covenant God. God deals with families. He does. He deals with generations. He makes covenant with generations. He says, my covenant passes down. Yes, even for those who reject the covenant, who are covenant breakers. We have, by the way, we don't need to stumble over the phrase as well. He will by no means clear the guilty. Sometimes people wonder, well, if you're not going to clear the guilty, well, I mean, is there no forgiveness? Well, in fact, it just said that he forgives. The phrase before it says that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you notice that? That it actually piles up three synonyms to say, hey, God forgives sin. Well, you're like, okay, God, well, what about iniquity? Yep, I forgive iniquity. Well, what about transgression? Yep, I forgive transgression as well. So what about not clearing the guilty does this mean? Well, again, you can think about the phrase this way, not letting guilt go unpunished. God doesn't just says, ah, sin can live in my good world and I'll just let it be. That's fine. I'll blanket over sin. No, God says sin ultimately will be dealt with. Sin really does require punishment. This is why we talk about the atonement the way we do as Christians, that the Lord really couldn't just pass over sin and kind of wink at it. He needed to deal with it, to judge it. And even in forgiveness, uh, there's guilt acknowledged. So the Lord says, I'm going to forgive sin, but I'm not just going to let it go. I'm not just going to let it kind of wink at it. I'm going to deal with this as a covenant God. Someone or something must bear the guilt, according to the scriptures. Well, all of this is the name of the Lord. He says, the name that passes by. Uh, You know, Moses says, I want your glory. God says, I'm going to show my goodness. And then the name passes by. The name, the covenant name of the Lord. And what's Moses' response to this? He says, to quickly bow his head and worship. That's the response, by the way, of the upward call. When God calls you upward, come up into my presence, ascend on high, and he says his name, you bow. You are in worship, meeting with the Lord on high. But Moses also petitions the Lord. He says, now if I have found favor in your sight. And Moses has heard, I'm a forgiving God. That's who I am. Oh, good. Now if I found favor in your sight, let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your possession. God says, here's who I am as a covenant God. Moses says, then please take us as your covenant partner. We don't deserve it, Moses says. It's not because of any desert, but please take us as your possession. These are all covenant terms here. 
And the Lord asked, and Moses asked the Lord to go in the midst of the people. It's interesting, if you remember that earlier scene when the Lord is talking with Moses and he says, uh, you know, he's going to abandon his people. He says, they're a stiff-necked people, and that's why I'm going to just, I'm going to get away with them, Moses, and it's just going to be you and me. Well, now Moses actually says, uh, sort of, because we're a stiff-necked people, don't leave us. Don't leave us because we are stiff-necked. We need you. We need this covenant. We need you to remain with us. Moses is acting as an intercessor, a mediator, a covenant uh, partner in this. Pardon our iniquity. He even includes himself, really, in the sin of the people. Moses hadn't really been sinful in all of this, but he says, pardon our iniquity in this. And Moses calls on the Lord, take us for your possession. The word here can mean inheritance, which kind of makes us think of the father-son relationship, which has some covenant overtones, you know, passing down the legacy. But it also has a kind of marital sense to it, possession. You think of the Song of Solomon, I am the beloved's and the beloved's is mine, one flesh. It says, take us for your possession. We need to be in this covenant relationship. See, the Lord has won his bride from a captor. This is what he says. He says, I've wooed you in the wilderness, and now the Lord is even setting up a bridal tent. If you want to think about what the tabernacle is, well, it's the bridal tent. It's part of what goes on in the ancient world. You enter into a house together. The Lord is going to be with his bride. This is the character of the covenant with these characters of the covenant. Who is the Lord? Well, the Lord is this. Who is Israel? This is Israel. Not so great, but they're entering and restoring this covenant. Well, the next section gives us the responsibilities of a covenant relationship. It's important to notice that God always announces his responsibilities first. You might think, well, does God have any responsibilities? Oh, yes, he does. And in fact, he often announces them. He doesn't lay the obligation on us first. He says, well, here's what I'm going to be responsible for. Well, what does the Lord says? I will do marvels such as not been done in all the earth or in any nation. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do marvels for my people. Israel doesn't need to do marvels, by the way. This is the Lord's role. This is his initiation. This is what a covenant head, a covenant husband does. He leads the way. He provides. He even says the purpose in all of this. I'm doing this that the people might see the work of the Lord. It's the Lord who works. See, it's not our works first in a covenant. God says, you wait for a second and I'll work, and then you can work after I've worked. He doesn't give the obligation first of all to us. By the way, every covenant is like this. There's always a first person to kind of initiate the covenant. Well, God initiates the covenant. We don't initiate it. And it's only then that he gives us our responsibilities. And look at what he says here. Observe what I command you this day. I think even this is a kind of interesting phrase, isn't it? He doesn't start off with strictly saying, do this. What does he say? Observe this. See what I'm doing. Consider what you are to do. In fact, the Hebrew word can mean preserve this, keep this, put a hedge around this, honor these words I'm giving to you. And then if you do that, yes, you should do them and obey them. And then the rest of this section goes on to repeat many of these covenant laws. Larry had done this earlier when we looked at Exodus 21 through 23. I'm not going to actually go over many of these laws. Uh, I just want to highlight some of the categories of these laws as it relates to covenant relationship. Well, one aspect of these laws that you see is that they're about covenant loyalty and worship. 
if Israel, if God is going to be loyal to Israel alone, by the way, God says, I'm not doing this for other nations. It's kind of like a husband saying, I take this one and forsaking all others, I'm not going to have you and a couple others on the side, forsaking all others. The Lord says, I'm going to forsake others. I'm going to be faithful to you, Israel, in particular. So Israel is to be faithful to God with this jealous husband. You see this name, jealous is his name. Well, that's a description of a husband. A husband should be jealous for your wife. If you're not, not a very good husband, jealous for your wife. So she is to be faithful to him. She is to be a faithful bride. No other covenants, no other side marriages are, should endanger this one covenant they're making with the Lord. Well, and as an illustration of this, notice that that even relates to your family members. Hey, don't let your sons and daughters marry unbelievers. Don't go outside the covenant people. Family matters. Keep the faith in your family. Keep the family heritage. That's some of the laws of what's going here. That's why you're to keep the family traditions, the family holidays. You probably each have family traditions, don't you, that you want to keep, you want to hand down. Well, God says, by the way, here are the family traditions, the feast, this feast, do this, not just because you have to do it, because these are the family traditions. These are the family celebrations. You might say the family anniversaries, the feast of Passover, unleavened bread, feast of weeks, feast of end gathering. There's also this pattern of redemption, tribute, and presentation. Look with me on this. The Lord several times in this passage says, everything belongs to me. Okay, let's just go ahead and state that, he says. This is part of what the covenant is. I got everything. It all belongs to me. But, he says, I'm also going to give you back. The Lord's a redeemer. He gives you back things. He does this through a substitution. He says, all of these animals, these firstborn, they're mine. I'll give them back with a substitution. By the way, isn't that a biblical picture for us of atonement? I give it back to you when another represents and substitutes that. But in return, the Lord expects his people also to give back. So he says, hey, don't appear before me empty-handed. Bring tribute. This is, by the way, again, the Lord isn't being sort of selfish, we might say, in this. This is part of a covenant relationship. Can you imagine, husbands and wives, if on your anniversary only one of you gave a gift, and they said, well, thanks for that gift. And the other said, well, okay, where's mine? (laughs) It's about gift exchange. The Lord gives great gifts to his people. And he says, bring me gifts as well. This is how you uh, continue the covenant relationship. Mutual giving. Is, but the most important in all of this is actually that you give yourself. By the way, that's the whole idea of appearing before the Lord. Appear before me. Come into my presence. Present yourself to me. That's how we'll continue this covenant relationship. This kind of covenant reenactment, by the way. God's saying, hey, I love this covenant pattern so much, what we're doing here on the mountain. Let's do it all the time. Let's just keep doing it over and over again. Let's reenact the covenant. Do you ever do that with your families? Again, husbands and wives. Reenacting, in a sense, commemorating what you've done, this covenant pattern together. Of course, there's a lot more we could say with these laws, but let's skip down to verse 27 where we have the idea that this is written down. It's a testimony of the covenant. Uh, You know, my wife Becky, we put our vows that we made up on our wall in our Bedroom as a way to say, hey, there's a kind of a covenant testimony. We can remember these. We can look that we've made vows. There's words of the covenant. We have obligations to one another. But then we ask the question that I started with today, what happens when the covenant ceremony is successful? What does life in the covenant result in? And the answer the Bible gives us is glory. Glory. It's kind of an interesting word, isn't it? 
covenants are glorious. In fact, the marriage covenant in Scripture is given for what's called glory and a covering. Isn't that great? Marriage is for glory and a covering, the Scriptures tell us. And that's exactly what we see in this next section. The result of meeting with the Lord on high in this covenant renewal is that Moses' face shines. It says rays burst forth from his skin. It's kind of like poof. Rays are just coming out of shining light. Now, this is interesting, though, when you think about it. Moses has been meeting with the Lord a lot in Exodus, hasn't he? How many times has Moses' face shown before? None that we can know of. It's interesting. Why does it happen this time? Well, if you remember, it's because Moses asked for it. Lord, show me your glory. Show us this. It's almost like Moses knows what's going on. There's a panic going on. There's a, the covenant's totally breaking down. And Moses says, show us your glory, O God. Show me your glory. And so now God is saying, okay, I will. It's even greater. This renewal of the covenant actually makes it more glorious than the first, uh, even though it's on account of Israel's breaking of the covenant. That's kind of a biblical pattern as well. That God, as he reveals himself through history, reveals more and more, saying, you haven't seen this, this uh, aspect of me. Let me show you, in a sense, my full glory, even though it's often occasioned by our sin. By the way, that's the cross, after all, the greatest human sin, and God's showing, this is the full extent of my glory, my covenant glory. See, glory in the Bible is often related to beauty, to brightness, to get glory is to get more light on something, to see it and to see things by it, to see that it's beautiful and radiant. But sometimes there's a problem with more light, and that's because people love darkness, Scripture says. We're afraid of the light. If you know R.C. Sproul's great book, The Lightlings, he says, you know, most kids tell you that you're afraid of the dark. He says, let me tell you, actually human beings are afraid of the light. See, when Moses comes down with his glorious face shining, his sin, the sins are forgiven. He's got new promises. He's got a restored covenant for the people. Do they react with a clapping and a cheering? They says they're afraid. Whoa, this is even more crazy, more fearful, because they know that God's glory is a consuming fire. God's glory and holiness don't mix with sin. It says they're afraid to draw near. They don't even want to get near Moses on this. But notice, it's Moses who actually calls out to them. We see all this mercy in this passage. Moses says, calls out to them. Just as the Lord called out to Moses to draw near, Moses says, no, come draw near. And he acts in the place of the Lord. And notice, first of all, that it's the leaders of Israel. It's Aaron and the elders who first draw near for the people. We've got kind of layers upon layers of mediation. They're mediators of the people. And Moses is a mediator of the Lord. And so we get this big covenant sort of mediation of all this together that they finally draw near. And it says Moses gives them the words of the Lord. But then we have this business about the veil because they're fearful of glory, fearful of this glory shining. The unbridled glory, it, they can't control. It's just too much to handle. If you imagine being in a dark room all day, if you've ever walked out and suddenly it's light outside, it's like, whoa, that light is blinding. You know, if you had been outside all day, the light wouldn't have been blinding. But if you've been in darkness, that light's just too much. It can be intense. It can be harmful. You need to take some time to get used to the light. And that's actually what we have here at the end of the passage. There's a kind of a sin and a mercy, in a sense, in this. 
Moses is going to have to do a certain ritual from now on that when he meets with the Lord and his face shines, he's going to put a veil over it. He's going to have to veil the glory. Glory veiled, a veiled glory. And the whole thing is a reminder about the context of the covenant. See, God's covenant comes to a sinful people, to people who are still afraid to get too close to God. It's a little too close, a little too hot to get too close to this God. God's glory is a little too hot, too much for me right now. And it's interesting that veils are actually an important part of the tabernacle system that the Lord sets up for Israel. Notice that. See, the tabernacle is God's house. Uh, And he's welcoming his people, come on over to my house, he says. And you even get to have a meal with the Lord. That's part of what the peace offering is. You get to have a meal with the Lord in his house. God invites you over. But there's limitations. God says you can only go so far. And he's going to set up what? Veils between him and his inner sanctum. This is in a part a mercy for Israel. It would be good for Israel to come all the way in. But is Israel ready to come all the way in to the Lord's presence? Not yet. He says, I'm going to come live with you, but only so far right now. God's drawing closer, but there's still a veil. There's still something yet to come. You know, the other thing that a veil is important in Scripture and sort of generally, a wedding. See, traditionally, not much in our culture, you don't see it as much in any way, uh, today as much, the bride will show up, what? With a veil. You can't see her face Fully, but once the vows are made, once the sealing of the covenant is going on, well, then you remove the veil. It's now time to kiss the bride. Well, the coming of this marriage covenant with the Lord, with his bride Israel, it's a glorious thing. Paul even tells us later, it was glorious, but it's not complete. See, it wasn't the Lord who enforced the veil. It's not he said, I wanted you to have a veil. It's the people who said, we can't handle this. And the Lord says, okay, we'll do a veil for now. We're going to put a veil, we're going to put a a, a sort of so far marker in our relationship in this covenant relation. In fact, Israel has already shown that she's kind of a reluctant bride. You might say pretty much a runaway bride. At the very altar, she's kind of running away. At least the second time she's staying for the vows, but the veil hasn't fully come off. That's what we get to in the Old Testament. The veil hasn't fully come off. I know that's just an analogy, but I think it gets at what's going on in this passage. There's glory. There's a glorious covenant, but there's still some fear. There's still some hesitancy. There's not a face-to-face. Isn't what marriage about is face-to-face, but there's a drawing back. Well, look at what Paul, this is something we read for our New Testament. When Paul is reflecting on God's covenant faithfulness for us in Christ, he actually comes back to this scene in Exodus 34. He never speaks badly about the Lord making a covenant with Israel. He never says the old covenant was just bad, it was sinful to begin with. No, he says it came with glory. He says it was glorious. Yes, it was. But he says ultimately this covenant arrangement couldn't bring life. That's why he calls it a ministry of death, of condemnation. It could only do the killing part. Did we need to die in some sense? Yes. Sin has to die in us if righteousness is to live. But he says it couldn't do the life-giving part. See, the veil on Moses, Paul is reflecting on, is kind of like a sign for the whole old covenant. It was a veiled covenant. It was a covenant of veiled glory. The glory was there, but we just couldn't see it fully. Paul says it's an outward sign of what was going on in the heart of people, not just those people, but of people. We couldn't yet draw near to the Lord. We're not just ready to receive the Lord fully. 
But in this last, this greatest renewing of God's covenant with humanity, the veil is removed. And why? Because the Son comes. Do you remember the line from the Christmas carol, I love Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Jesus comes wearing a veil in a sense. Well, what's that veil? He comes with the glory of God, but in flesh. When people looked at Jesus, did they say, whoa? No, he actually isn't like that with Moses. People can come close to Jesus. They can touch him. They can talk with him because it's the glory of God veiled in this. It's not overpowering us. That's a mercy toward us. And when the Lord finally brings the glory of God to its full climax on the cross, remember what happens? The veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. God's saying, take that veil off. The covenant ceremony is here. The bride can fully look at her husband face to face. The new covenant in Christ is this ultimate renewing of God's covenant with his people because he dealt ultimately with sin, his death on the cross, showing that God doesn't leave sin unpunished. He's going to judge it, so now he can show mercy to a thousand generations, to people with 302 zeros behind them. That's how God's going to show his love. And because we're in Christ, and Christ's flesh is the new way to God, we really can receive God's shining glory without fear. Listen to the end of how Paul puts it so beautiful. He says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. The thing he said the Israelites couldn't do. He says, we're beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Like Paul says, it's going to get even more glorious. The glory just keeps piling up. More glory. Unveiled faces because of Jesus. We could say it this way. You really can stare into the sun. You know, they always, as a kid, I was always told, don't look at the sun too long. Because I was always, you know, sort of a joke. Is how long could you look at the sun before it's like, ah. The Lord says, now stare into my son. And you can. You can. Because he's done it for us. C.S. Lewis, you might know the, the great Oxford convert to Christianity, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, the kids' books, also wrote another novel, a novel called Till We Have Faces. It was his final novel. It's a fairly deep novel. It's a myth about a woman who, upon being told she was ugly as a child, she was, there was a lot of uh, insults around her, puts a veil on her face, and she wears it the rest of her life. And we're told that she lives in bitterness behind the veil. She's living in bitterness behind the veil. She's hesitant about all she did. She's complained that she can't see the gods in this story face to face and give her complaint. It's not until the very end of the novel she's given a vision, a vision of her whole life, not as she saw it, but actually from the divine perspective of her life. And she says this, before your face, all questions die away. She says, I have learned to become barefaced, because only when we can see face to face can we truly have faces, till we have faces. It's in being unveiled before the Lord that we are truly given shining faces as well, reflecting that same glory. This is our transformation, Paul says. So, beloved, the call is the same to you today. Don't run from his glory. Don't hide from God. That is your first instinct. You may think, oh, it's not my first. It is to run from God. I don't want him too close. I keep him a bit arm's length. I, I like to have a relationship with God, but I also like to keep a little bit of distance between me and God. Turn to him. Embrace your covenant Lord. 
Yes, we are all covenant breakers at bottom as well. That is us. But God comes to renew covenant in the face of Jesus Christ. He calls us to ascend the mountain, to meet with him, to behold his glory, and to be transformed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together and ask his blessing so that we might do this as well. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are a covenant-keeping God, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. We praise you, O God, that in Christ Jesus, your Son, you have kept covenant with us and renewed it for your people. So cause us, Father, by your Spirit to draw near to you with unveiled faces and behold your glory so that we might be transformed and that all people might see your glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.